This EHIV review program is presented by DKB Med Radio. I think that in our country, we know there are many health inequities. And the question becomes, how do we better understand those inequities from the point of view of adolescents and young adults? One of the main uh, sort of issues or one of the main drivers of health inequities in AYA and in people more broadly is really culturally inappropriate care. And this is care that is not aligned with the cultural needs of the young person. AYA and ending the HIV epidemic. Welcome to this issue of EHIV Review. AYA, shorthand for adolescents and young adults. New HIV infection rates are declining for the younger and older populations on either side of their demographics. Why are theirs increasing? Why are they so difficult to connect to the HIV care continuum? What critical parts do AYA play in the success of ending the HIV epidemic by the year 2030? To discuss these and other issues, we're joined today by Dr. Vincent Guillermo Ramos, professor at and dean of the Duke University School of Nursing. For our guest disclosures and additional CME information, please go to our website, ehivreview.org, and select the Volume 8, Issue 10 link. I'm Bob Busker, DKB Med Editorial Director and Managing Editor of EHIV Review. Dr. Ramos, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Bob, for having me today and for covering an important topic, adolescents and young adults. Our first learning objective is recognize adolescents and young adults, AYA, as a priority population for HIV prevention and sexual health promotion. In a moment, doctor, I'm gonna ask you to take us to the clinic to discuss how what you wrote about AYA in your published commentary last issue can be applied in practice. Uh, But first, I wanna take a moment to set the stage for our conversation. And it comes down to one specific question, why? Why should adolescents and young adults, AYA as we've been calling them, why should AYA be considered a priority population in managing the U.S. HIV epidemic? So, Bob, what a great question. I think uh, one of the things that I want to start with is simply by saying that often the HIV prevention and treatment needs of adolescents and young adults is largely invisible. There are probably at least four important reasons or dimensions why I would say that adolescents and young adults are particularly important if we are in fact going to meet our ending the HIV epidemic goals of 2030, uh, which means getting fewer than 3,000 infections annually uh, by 2030. And so here are maybe uh, the reasons in four buckets. The first is that we continue to see that the annual estimated HIV incidence among AYA is much too high. And so when we think about data that comes from the CDC, what we see is that uh, in young people under the age of 25 years, uh, that one in four, excuse me, one in five or 20% of all estimated annual new HIV infections is actually in adolescents and young adults. Really, really alarming. And this is something, Bob, that I wanna highlight for the viewers is that young MSM, particularly young MSM of color, African-American, Latino, the estimates have been increasing. And so what's really troublesome about this is that during a time when HIV incidence overall has been going down, we see that for young MSM, Black and Latino, that estimated incidence actually has been going up. And so two in three 
estimated new HIV infections among youth ages 13 to 24 is among young MSM, Latino, and Black. We also know that uh, when we think about all the sexually transmitted infections that are reported in our country in a given year, that about half of those infections are among adolescents and young adults. And so young people, AYA, only represent one in four people who's actually currently sexually active, but half of all of the STIs that are reported occur in AYA, disproportionately impacting adolescents and young adults. And why we should all care about that is that we know that if one has an STI, that it becomes much easier to acquire HIV. And if you happen to be living with HIV and then acquire a sexually transmitted infection that is not HIV, it's much more efficient to transmit HIV to someone else. Uh, we know across what we call our HIV care continuum, prevention and treatment, that young people are not doing as well as adult populations. And so when we think about testing, the vast majority of young people in our country report they've never been tested uh, for HIV. Uh, the most compelling data comes from the CDC where 90% of US high school students have, have reported that they've never received an HIV test. I mean, this is pretty, pretty surprising and should be of great concern. We also know that uh, we cannot um, refer people who are living or young people who are living with HIV uh, to care if we don't know that they are in fact uh, diagnosed. And so we think about uh, the numbers of young people who are living with HIV, about 45% remain uh, undiagnosed, which means no ability to refer to care, no ability to start antiretroviral treatment, and no ability to uh, maintain viral suppression, all very important aspects of uh, ensuring that that young person stays healthy, but also preventing forward transmission of HIV. I wanna take a step back and state that across the entire continuum, whether it be prevention and the use of pre-exposure prophylaxis, which we know is a highly effective way of preventing acquisition of HIV, to viral suppression for those young people that are living with HIV, we see that young people are faring much worse than their adult counterparts. And so across every single indicator, whether they get tested, whether they're on PrEP, whether if they're living with HIV, they get linked to care, whether they get retained in care, whether they are initiating antiretroviral treatment, or whether they're maintaining viral suppression, that young people are doing much worse relative to their adult counterparts. Bob, for those reasons, I'm really excited that we are focusing on adolescents and young adults because too often they're being left behind when we think about ending HIV, <clears throat> ending HIV in our country and, and actually across our globe. Those statistics, Dr. Ramos, make a very convincing case for prioritizing more effective HIV care for this population. With that as background, if you would please, doctor, take us to the clinic now and start us out with a patient scenario. So, Bob, I want to tell you a bit about a real-life patient. I'm going to uh, make up some names just to protect her identity, but I'd like to introduce everyone to Isabella. Isabella is 17 years of age. She identifies as a Latina young person. She comes into an adult internal medicine clinic, and Isabella says that she's concerned about uh, having a sexually transmitted infection, and she's seeking screening and potentially treatment if she does, in fact, have an STI. 
Isabella uh, says that um, she has a partner, that her partner is African-American, that the partner's name is Alex, also made up, and that he identifies as being bisexual, and that the two of them, both Isabella and Alex, have decided that in their relationship, that they um, define that relationship as being open. And what that means is that for Isabella and Alex, that they may choose to have sexual partners outside of just the two of them. And so they're not monogamous when it comes to their sexual activity. We know that Isabella's requesting testing uh, for an STI. She's really uncomfortable, Bob. She's in the waiting area and she clearly looks nervous. She's jittery. She's trying not to look at anyone. She's not making eye contact. She feels uh, a little bit embarrassed or stigmatized that perhaps she might have an STI. And she doesn't want anyone to know that she's there. She doesn't want anyone to see her, uh, who she might know. And she's particularly worried about her family, in particular her parents or people from school, knowing that she's seeking services in an STI clinic and that she's, uh, or that she's seeking services in a clinic, but for STIs. We know that uh Isabella is concerned about this and she's asking for ways uh to uh really uh a know whether or not she has an STI but also she's interested in her future and interested in knowing how she can prevent uh, getting STIs uh not only now but also in the future it seems this case has a number of ongoing complexities uh, let me ask you a question doctor Overall, if there's one single foundationally most important point you want clinicians to be aware of when treating AYA patients like Isabella, what would that be? So, Bob, great question. The most important thing that I'd like all providers to be aware of is that they're dealing with an adolescent and young adult. Uh, this is a person who is not an adult, and the care that is provided should be focused on Isabella's unique needs. I think the challenging part is that she's coming to an adult internal medicine clinic, and yet she is different and has different uh, aspects of her identity, her developmental stage, that actually need to be considered when thinking through how to best approach Isabella. What is the best approach to this patient encounter? What's your primary concern? So, Bob, the primary concern in Isabella's situation, and for that matter, Isabella and Alex's situation, is addressing their sexual health. And so in the case of Isabella, uh, it really is going to be important that we provide appropriate services. And this means that as a provider, we have to have a, a really solid understanding of Isabella's sexual health history. And one of the tools that we often use clinically is what we call the five Ps, which has to do with uh, who is Isabella having sex with? Who are her partners? What are the sexual practices that Isabella engages in? Has Isabella ever had any past sexually transmitted infections that she's aware of? Her pregnancy history, has she ever been pregnant? And is she planning to become pregnant? And then also the protection that Isabella may be using to prevent sexually transmitted infections and uh, HIV. Those five Ps are a useful framework for providers. I use them all the time in clinic because it helps me to choose my words and to make sure that I'm covering the essentials of a good sexual history in a way that I can get the information that I need clinically 
to come up with the most appropriate interventions. I want to add, Bob, that it's really essential that as we're asking these five Ps, that we're using language that is not stigmatizing, that doesn't convey any kind of judgment, and that really is a partnership, a collaborative relationship between Isabella and her provider so that she understands that these are questions that will help define the best care and that will allow Isabella to make decisions about what she wants to do and how she can best protect herself. Describe your approach to this case, if you would, please, Dr. Ramos. For me, I want to start with really acknowledging where Isabella is, that she is uncomfortable seeking uh, STI services and really making sure that I'm doing everything possible as Isabella's provider to try to normalize and to make her feel comfortable. I want to also highlight, Bob, there are all of these issues around confidentiality. You know, Isabella's in the waiting room. She's concerned about nobody seeing her. She's not making eye contact. She's nervous and jittery. She wonders if her family or her friends will find out. Really important that Isabella knows that uh, all of the care that she's receiving is confidential and that uh, really what she's sharing with her provider will stay between just uh, Isabella and her provider. And then the last thing I want to highlight is that depending upon what state you live in, there may be different laws and different regulations about what kinds of services minors can access without parental permission. And so it's really going to be important that as a provider, you understand the context in which you are working and that you think about ensuring that you're following any kind of state uh, laws about sexual and reproductive health services. Healthcare inequities, Dr. Ramos. They've been and continue to be a growing concern in medicine. Talk to us, if you would, please, about the challenges they present in treating AYA. So, Bob, what a great question. I think that in our country, we know there are many health inequities. And the question becomes, how do we better understand those inequities from the point of view of adolescents and young adults? One of the main uh, sort of issues or one of the main drivers of health inequities in AYA and in people more broadly is really culturally inappropriate care. And this is care that is not aligned with the cultural needs of the young person. And because of that lack of culturally appropriate uh, care, then it results in uh, you know, either foregone care or suboptimal care. I've talked a lot today about confidentiality and disclosure. I think for young people, this is uh, a major barrier. If they feel like their privacy, uh, like their confidentiality, like their autonomy in terms of making decisions is not going to be respected, then they're unlikely to engage in health services. And so it's important to really emphasize to adolescents and young adults that their confidentiality will be preserved pending any state legislation that prevent, prevents that. But in that case, it's going to be critical that we tell the young person what the law is stating so they know and can make decisions. And that also, that disclosure won't occur unless there are very specific circumstances. Again, that goes back to uh, the law and that young people understand what those uh, necessary disclosures are uh, in advance so that they don't find themselves in a situation where they feel like the clinic hasn't been forthcoming and there's a strain in the provider-patient relationship. Excellent point, doctor. What about stigma? What role does stigma play in AYA being reticent to seek out and accept STI and HIV medical care? 
stigma, shame, blame, embarrassment. It's not a great feeling, Bob, to go into a sexual health uh, clinic visit and to feel like you've got to admit that you are concerned that you might have a sexually transmitted infection. So it's really important that providers are minimizing stigma, that we are really uh, normalizing the importance of sexual health. And it's a partnership that there is not a reason to feel embarrassed or ashamed, that the focus is really on being collaborative and developing a plan to prevent uh, the negatives while maximizing the positives. It's also critical that young people have more time in an actual clinical encounter. And this is very challenging because there's so much pressure on us to see increasingly more and more patients and there's less and less time. And I think one of the important aspects of really youth-friendly services is not seeing this as solely an appointment that is focused on a sexually transmitted infection. I've been very intentional today to broaden the discussion of Isabella's case. Because for me, when I enter uh, a clinical encounter, I really want to know who Isabella is, what's happening in her life, uh, what matters to her. At the end of that encounter, what is the most important thing that she can get at the end of that session where she can leave feeling like her health needs were actually met? And so that takes time. It means I've got to listen. I've got to ask questions. I've got to develop a relationship. I have to not only know, screen and treat for a sexually transmitted infection. That's sort of the the quick and fast part. But I've got to make sure that I do that in a way that actually Isabella and I are in partnership and that we can use that encounter as a way of reinforcing health promotion and prevention for the future and a way of engaging Isabella in healthcare in a more routine and regular, predictable way. And the only way to do that is by really having developmentally appropriate care And that means uh, putting Isabella into a broader context. It isn't a body part. It isn't a disease. It's a whole person. And it's really centered on what they need. It's important to think about Isabella being in a broader context. And one one of the most important contexts is her family. And again, while we want to preserve confidentiality and Isabella's autonomy, we also want to think about who in her life can really support her to maximize her sexual health while really preserving her privacy and her ability to make her own decisions. Well, in your own practice, doctor, how do you ensure that your care delivery is culturally responsive to AYA like Isabella? When I think about my own practice as a provider to adolescents and young adults, I've often drawn on a very particular framework that was developed by a physician by the name of Roberto Luis Fernandez and a colleague of his who was a social worker. And it's called the cultural formulation. What I like about the formulation, it really identifies a couple of key steps that I think are critical for thinking about how to provide care to young people like Isabella. So the first is, what is Isabella's cultural identity? Who is she? What is her ethnic or cultural reference? What are her language abilities? And what is her identification with uh, her culture of origin? Uh, and if she happens to uh, you know, be in a host culture, in the case of Isabella, her family um, was from the Dominican Republic. And so what is her relationship between uh, being in the US and her host culture, which is the US culture, 
and her culture of origin, which is her family's uh, country of origin, the Dominican Republic. Are there ideas that Isabella has uh, about the nature of uh, you know, the health status that she is currently experiencing. So in this case, she's seeking an STI. Let's imagine she has uh, been diagnosed with the STI or she's been diagnosed with HIV. Are there cultural explanations for that? You know, some cultures might see that as being, uh, you know, associated with a particular behavior or a particular experience, or there may be a negativity that is uh, kind of rooted in the cultural understanding of why people become HIV positive or why somebody has an STI. Are there aspects in the environment that are sort of shaped by culture? Are there specific stressors? Is Isabella's family, for example, undocumented? Is she in a context where uh, she may not have access to health insurance, where she may be fearful that if she brings attention to the fact that she's 17 and, and having sex and um, and maybe she experiences um, an unplanned pregnancy or an STI or HIV, that this will then, um, you know, create problems in her environment, additional financial burdens, or that it may be perceived as being shameful by people in her home. And she may have social pressures. Uh, uh, there may be sort of concerns about social support. It may There may be concerns about how Isabella's actions or her particular uh, health status impacts others in the home. There are also aspects, Bob, uh, that are cultural about the patient-provider relationship. Are there differences in who Isabella is as an individual and her provider? In this case, I also happen to be Latino, but despite uh, are both being Latino, uh, there may be differences uh, that we have. We may come from different countries. Uh, I'm a male, Isabella is a female. We need to understand uh, how these cultural elements affect our patient-provider relationship. And then taking all of that information, Bob, and doing an overall cultural assessment and thinking, what does it mean to Isabella to uh, be screened and diagnosed and treated for an STI or for HIV, and how does this fit into a care model, who she is and her culture? These are dimensions that are critical for ensuring that Isabella engages in her health services. Well, thank you, Dr. Ramos, for that very comprehensive presentation. Let's revisit our discussion now in light of our learning objective, recognize adolescents and young adults, AYA, as a priority population for HIV prevention and sexual health promotion. What are the most important points you want our learners to take away from today's discussion? Really, the most important thing is to recognize that adolescents and young adults are actually a priority population. And we've talked a lot today about all the ways that uh, AYA are sort of doing more uh, poorly relative to their adult counterparts. And so really emphasizing to viewers, AYA matter in terms of meeting the, ending the HIV epidemic goals in our country. AYA are not just many adults, they are their own uh, developmental period with social, emotional, cognitive, and physical uh, changes that really need to be considered in the provision of care and how we think about HIV prevention and treatment. And so important to think about a way as being unique and distinct. The importance, Bob, of a comprehensive sexual health history 
And we talked about the five Ps and spent quite a bit of time and really thinking through how to go about asking those questions in ways that are not judgmental and that reduce stigma. We also uh, highlighted the cultural formulation and really ensuring that we have culturally appropriate care and that we're reducing uh, implicit bias and any bias that can enter into uh, how we provide care to adolescents and young adults. Dr. Vincent Guillermo Ramos, professor and dean of the Duke University School of Nursing, thank you for joining us in today's EHIV review program. So, Bob, thank you so much for having me. It was really uh, a pleasure to be here. And I hope that viewers really uh, will take something meaningful away from our conversation today about AYA, in particular, Isabella. Thank you. For EHIV Review, I'm Bob Busker. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at ehiv.dkbmed.com. EHIV Review is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated, Merkin Company, and Vive Healthcare. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. EHIV Review is copyright with all rights reserved by DKB Med LLC. Thank you for listening.